All rise. All rise. Come before the people in this court and you will be heard. I want you to take your court documents. We have them written down in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be following along both of the arguments with this sworn testimony we find in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we're going to try this case before the public jury. You, ladies and gentlemen, are that jury. You are here to deliberate on the arguments that are presented, and you are going to be asked at the end of this time to give a verdict. What we have here is the people of Corinth versus Paul, the apostle. On this side, we're going to have the plaintiff. The plaintiff is Mr. Constant Denier. He is an attorney at law coming to present the case on behalf of the Gnostics for the Peace of Greece, the largest philosophical organization in Greece, specifically in the city of Corinth. They're going to wage their complaint, and to defend this complaint is Paul the Apostle. He represents the way, the people of the way. He's an expert in Jewish law, and if you want to donate to him, he'd be happy to accept those donations. So you may be seated. Court is now in session. We are going to begin with the plaintiff, Mr. Denier. Well, thank you, Your Honor, and people of the jury, ladies and gentlemen. I am pleased to present my case. Just from the onset, I'm going to be very honest. This is an open and shut case. There's not much to dispute nor discuss. I have listened to this expert of Jewish law for the last 15 chapters, and I have not said a word. I have understood his theories. I have listened to him expound these theories while holding my tongue on many of his quite objectionable opinions. But what he presented to us last week must be addressed, and I'm going to ask him at the end of this time to rescind his argument, to strike it from the public record. And you'll see why in a second. If you can open up to that record, 1 Corinthians 15, he has said one thing that is appalling, specifically to this group I represent, the Gnostic group, this is our complaint. If you look in verse 3 and 4, he is going to state this is the core of the Christian faith. It is what he stands on, and I am here to say this core is rotten. Look at verse 3. We don't disagree with verse 3. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, verse 4, that he was buried. We have no problem with that. Our complaint isn't waged there. Our complaint is the second part of verse 4. He was raised on the third day. Ladies and gentlemen, need we hear anymore? <laughs> this man teaches that Christ has been raised from the dead 
seriously? Can, can we take anything else seriously that he says? My complaint is very simple. I have it here in verse 12, and it is this. There is no resurrection of the dead because the dead cannot rise. I'll put it like this, and I will offer you two proofs of this argument. Sorry about that. Dead men stay dead. Have any of you ever walked past the cemetery and seen anybody walking that was once buried? Show me the body. I uh, grew up in a home. My dad would often quip as we drove by the cemetery, son, how many do you think are buried there? I'd say, well, dad, I don't know. He'd say, all of them. Dead men stay dead. If you have any other proof, I would be happy to hear it. Present it to the judge and the jury, and I might hear your case. But everybody knows dead men die and stay buried. Not only that, but they rot. So that is my argument. There is no resurrection of the dead. I would also say this. I'm listening closely. We as Gnostics are the oldest Belief system in the Greek world. We recognize that the body is real, but the body is the problem. The body is a jail cell for the real me, the spiritual side of me, the side that is of worth, and this body keeps it in prison. Does not let the soul of man fly away. This expert of the law wants to once again enslave the soul back into this chains of clay and ash. He wants to put the released soul back in earthly prison. Not being able to fly away to glory, but to be bound to mud and clay. Your Honor... It is also recorded earlier in the testimony in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 32, this same shameless apostle made this argument on one of the most important places in Greek culture, Athens. He made the same statement that there's a resurrection of the dead, and he made it to our very own Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And after he did so, Quote, according to public testimony, they laughed him to scorn and mocked him. Our very own experts all agree. Dead men stay dead. If you have any other proof, I'll hear it. But you have none. So I will rest my case. Well, Your Honor, it is a pleasure to be here. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm glad you're here. I am representing Jehovah God, and um, I understand the points that were presented, but they are flawed on many logical levels. 
And if you can follow along with me, logically you will see not only is Mr. Denier wrong, but I would like to also sue him for damages later on because he ultimately has committed slander and libel against my character and the character of our holy God. You'll see this in a second. So, I will take up his argument in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Which he's arguing. Now, he has to understand this statement has some logical implications, which is seen in verse 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means there's no risen Christ. Christ has not been raised. And I'm going to make some arguments of my own. And if Christ has not been raised, then you're going to have to ask the what if questions. And I'm going to present three logical outgrowths of this what if. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is empty, that means there's no substance. Our faith is futile, we don't have anything to stand on. And I'm a liar. I want to address this first because this is attacking my character as a witness to God himself. You'll see it. I've stated my case clearly here in verses 15 and 16. Please follow along. Verse 15, we, meaning I and the other apostles, I and Apollos, Cephas, and even the super apostles. I, we, are even found to be misrepresenting God because we are testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not rise. If it's true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We'll talk about that in a second. But we according to him, are misrepresenting God. So if I am lying, three natural implications come off. Number one, we are misrepresenting, we're misspeaking. According to Proverbs and Jewish law, punishment is deserved, direct punishment for that. Number two, we bear false witness. According to Exodus 20.16, thou shalt not bear false witness. That goes right at the integrity of my message. Not only am I bearing false witness, but I deserve to be stoned for that. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, twice God hates two things, liars. If I'm representing God, why would I do something he abhors? And the third thing, of course, is Jesus himself lied. Do you understand that? Three times, Jesus made a statement. I will be handed over to the Sanhedrin. I will suffer. I will die. I will be buried. And I will rise again on the third day. Jesus himself claimed that three times. According to the book of Deuteronomy, a prophet, if his prophecy does not come true, have nothing to do with him. Some would even say, by penalty of death. So, ladies and gentlemen, you think Jesus is a great man. What a wonderful teacher, and yet he's a liar? How can you be a good man and a great teacher and yet be a liar? My God, Jesus Christ, 
does not blaspheme. He does not lie. I asked the plaintiff, are you really prepared to make that argument? Are you going to make that case? I don't think you are. Second thing, clearly, preaching is empty. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, they don't, those don't hold up. He's ruining my case. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Vanity means empty. means it's empty. But you have to think through this as well. Oh, it's easy to say that. So if Jesus didn't rise, everything I've been preaching is empty. Everything Cephas has been preaching is empty. Everything Apollos has been preaching is empty. And what this also means is what we said last week in verses 5 through 11, how all the witnesses saw him, Peter, the apostles, the 12, the 500. So were they all deluded? Was it mass delusion? That's a heavy claim. That means all of these apostles that were taking sides on in the Corinthian church, oh, I follow him, who cares who you follow? None of them matter. Because there's no message. Why even waste our time coming here? Why even come to church? And the final argument is found in 17.9. Look at 17 to 19. 17 to 19, he basically says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are the people to be the most pitied. In other words, if faith is futile, we're still in sin. Jesus came, his name means to save people from their sins. At the end of his life on earth, he died on a cross, and his words, I quote, he said, I It is finished. He should have said, I have failed if he wasn't going to rise from the dead. If you notice in this account, I have said two people suffer from this. First of all, those who have died are lost. They're lost. So your loved ones who've been buried, they still are worm food and will always be. It's really hopeful. Second thing, those who are alive, we are living a joke of a life. We're lying to ourselves. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, I talked about people that were caught up in perversity, caught up in greed, caught up in thieving, lying, and he said, that's what many of you were, but now because you believed, you've been washed. You've been renewed, reborn. Well, guess what? If the Lord is still in the grave, you are not washed. You're just as dirty as ever. You want to make that case? Book of Psalms, verses 10. King David was writing about what he foresaw, and Peter used it in his first argument, his first sermon ever. You can find it in Acts chapter 2, verse 31. And he writes, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So I would ask the plaintiff, is he also prepared to call Simon Peter a liar? And I want to take this a step further, Judge. Not to just 
render his argument. The implications are that he is ignorant of the whole biblical narrative. I will say it like this. I will say it like this. He misses, he, he misses the story. The body must rise if the story is going to be completed. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to talk about the story, but let's read about it. We can read it in verse 20 through 28. And as I read it, I will have up here a graph of the story. By story, what is the whole Bible about? It's a four-part story. So it begins, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So here's the, what's happening. The very beginning of the story, God created the world. And when he created the world, he said it was very what? Good, excellent. The jury is with me. He created a man named, according to this, Adam, the first man. And if you notice, it says, Adam died, in verse 22, in Adam all die. This is known as the fall. Because Adam sinned, we have inherited his proclivity for it. We too all die. That's what death is about. The Gnostic plaintiff wants us to say this is the end of the story. That's a terrible story. If God made everything good. There's no goodness to this story. But if we keep reading, he says, for in Adam all die, but also in Christ all shall be made alive. Who is Christ? Christ is the Messiah. Christ is Jesus, the one who came to rescue us from our sin. That's called salvation. He came to die on our behalf. When Jesus died, he also was raised. Let me show you what he writes here. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at the coming those who belong to Christ. Here's what this means. In the Old Testament, because I'm an expert in Jewish law, we have a festival called First Fruits. Basically, if you look out on a ripe harvest field, it's a wheat field, and you see all the stalks of wheat, we will take stalks of that wheat, we'll cut it, and then we'll wave it in the air, and they are called First Fruits. They're celebration that the harvest has arrived, but they're also proof that the rest of the harvest will be taken in. It's not just that one sheave. It's a prelude to all of them will be taken in. Jesus' resurrection is proof that those who have believed in him will be raised too. Why? To be restored for the consummation of all things. The creation story is being renewed, remade. Look at what it says. Verse 24. Then comes the end. The end of what? The story. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Well, which enemies? Well, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The fall. Keep reading. The last enemy destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him 
who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, full restoration is awaiting us when God will destroy death and he himself, the creator of all things, will be put on the throne of all things. And we will walk in his glory. So, just for the judge and jury, I want you also to think through before you make your verdict, you have to understand there's practical implications. I'll put it like this. What happens up there really does affect down here. And if we don't rise from the dead and live up there with new bodies, then nothing matters down here. Specifically, I put in my argument, three things don't matter. I spelled practical wrong just to see how the fall has affected me too. First thing is, why prepare for eternity? In here, there were some, there's a strange practice going on where people are baptized for the dead. What that means, it's not rightly known, but the idea is there are some people that will baptize for some people who have dead, basically preparing them for eternity. I know it's a strange concept, but the idea is they're preparing them for eternity, but if eternity is not going to happen in these bodies, why prepare them? Secondly, if you notice, I have endured a lot. I say in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? If I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have come in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus, meaning people are also always persecuting me. So why sacrifice? Why fight? If there is no resurrection of the dead, who cares? And then the third thing is if there's no resurrection of the dead, uh, verse 32, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we become worm food. <laughs> so let's drink. Who cares? Why come to church? It's a waste of time. We're going to die anyhow. If there is no resurrection of the dead. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the case is clear. Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. Don't listen to the plaintiff's arguments because he has made some slanderous accusations. And since God himself has saved you from sin by his son, I just have one exhortation, verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. As it is right, do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. If you keep sinning, you should be ashamed of yourself. Okay. <laughs> it's a good argument. Need my glasses to see. But Judge, I would like a short rebuttal. Let's say I entertain his argument. It was a fine argument. It was excellent. Let's say I admit the resurrection is possible. I am still hung up on one major stumbling block, and it's a problem all of us Gnostics have. And I think you have, if you really admit, there's a resurrection of the dead. And it's in regards to this body. Why would anyone in their right mind want this body back once they die and shed it? So my 
basically my counter-argument is why come back with the same broken body? And the question is this. Um, what kind of body rises, huh? What kind of body rises? A body like Lazarus? Oh yeah, Lazarus, he was dead and Jesus rose him up. He died again. I don't want that to happen. You want that body? Oh, you to kiss. Do you remember when Paul, that wonderful orator, was preaching and he preached so long that poor old Eutychus fell out of the window? Book of Acts, it's in the testimony. He died. Paul raised him from the dead. Guess what? Eutychus died again. You want that kind of body? Do you want the body? It's a story of a man who went to dig up a grave to move it. And as he dug up that body... It was all entrenched in some roots from a nearby willow tree that sucked all of the nutrients out of that body. You want that body? Where did that body go? In the leaves of the willow tree? Or do you want the body of the Navy men that are poured over the waters and the sharks eat their body? How are you going to rise a body from the sharks? What kind of body rises. Body with crooked back and rotted teeth. Lame legs. I don't want that body. This is a cage. And I want to shed it. Gnosticism at least teaches that these puzzles are just mere speculations. It's the soul of the man that matters. Not the body. The body's meant to perish and never come back. And if you think that's true, who wants this? Who wants this body? Judge, I don't. Well, Your Honor, One thing his counter-argument proves is simply this. He knows nothing. <laughs> he knows nothing. I would even go as far as, if you notice, in my account as I thought through what his argument was, a fool. He's a fool. He's a fool for two reasons, and this is where his argument fails, and you need to listen closely because this is going to take a little bit of complex thought. Judge and jury. There's two things he knows nothing about. Number one, number one, he has no idea about the nature of God. Look at verses 30 to 30, 36 to 37. Read along with me. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. Pretty clear. Nature teaches us this. What you sow, that seed is dead. And if that seed is planted, it comes back to life through germination. Let me show you the process. And look at the picture closely. If you notice on the left side, it begins with the dead seed. The dead seed sparks to life. The new life that happens, if you notice, is no longer the dead seed. Look how the dead seed in the third one is barely hanging 
And then the fourth one is a new life. It's not the seed no longer. It is the same kind that the seed produces, but it is not the seed. It's much better, much greater, but that seed must first die. This body, Your Honor, is the seed. That's all. Let me give you another argument just from human life. This is the same person. The first picture is age 11. The second picture is aged 50. Same person. No tenderness or sentimentalism out in the audience, please. This is an argument. I want to make two things. Number one, this is the same person, but it is not the same person. Did you know that the cells in the second person are completely different cells than the first person? Did you know every 10 years, all of our cells change? So the cells we had 10 years ago are not the cells we carry now. This person on the second picture hopefully is a little bit smarter. Not sure, knows a little bit more information, a little bit more able, and stronger. The new body will be of the same but not the same at all. If you notice, he does not also understand how the maker makes the body. Look at verses 38 to 41. Verses 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animal, another for birds, another for fish. So God makes lions to be perfect for the Sahara, for the jungle or wherever they are. They have the mane to block the wind, the sharp claws. To kill his prey, the powerful legs to chase it down. He makes the bird to escape the hunter. Long beak to catch the fish, a body designed for the perfect climate. And he makes a whale with such magnificence, like no other creature, but to live in the water for which he's designed been designed. In other words, he will make a body designed for heaven. Second thing, if you notice, you keep reading. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. You have the earth, beautiful blue jewel. The moon, a drab gray satellite. You have the sun, hot, blazing, fire. God made them all. And they each have a different radiance. That means glory and magnificence. So too with the new heavenly body. It would be different from the body of dust. Look what it says in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. To make my point very clear, Philippians 3.21 says, Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself? So He can subject all things to Himself. He can make an animal the way He wants to make it. He can give different glory to every glory. And then He can make our body exactly like His heavenly body. What does that mean? I know what it does not mean. I know what it does not mean and you can... See in verse 42, it does not mean that we carry any more of these qualities. We no longer have perishable clay to deal with. 
ends that get wrinkly, backs that curve, bodies that don't breathe well. We no longer have shameful bodies, but honorable bodies where we bring honor and glory and majesty, nobility back to the human race, which was designed to be. We no longer are weak, but we become strong. And as it says here in verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. No more dust. No more dust. This man also does not understand one more thing. He also does not understand the power of God. Listen. Verse 49, I tell you a mystery. Brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the pass, the saying that is written, then shall come the pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I have a, want to submit this to the court. It's a, a statement on the new body from a doctor of Christian law named Charles Hayden Spurgeon. And here's what he writes. I believe that when I shall enter upon my new body, I shall be able to fly from one spot to another. Like a thought. As swiftly as I will, I shall be here and there as the rays of light. From strength to strength, my spirit shall be able to leap outward to obey the behests of God. Upborne with wings of ether, it shall flash its way across the shoreless sea and see the glory of God in all his works and yet ever behold his face. For the eye shall then be strong enough to pierce through distance, and the memory shall never fail. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but brethren, to come back to reality and leave fancy for a moment, though it doth not appear what we shall be, yet we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And do you know what we shall be? If we shall be like him, behold the picture of what Jesus Christ is like, and this is what we shall be like. I saw, saith John, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the foot and girt about with the golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, 
and his countenance was as the sun shines in all its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is what we shall be like. I have a closing argument, and I will end on this. I am holding in my hand, if you can imagine, a golden cup. But this cup, over many years, is tarnished, dented, it's broken, and it's been drunk for many years by sailors who would pour wicked wine down their gullets as they would pass out dreary dreams. Imagine if I'm a blacksmith and I come along and I take this goblet and I throw it into the fire that I have stoked. And I hammer it. And I let the dross burn out of it until it gleams gold and bright. And I take it over here and make it in a brand new vessel. A vessel that has no stain, no wrinkle, no dent. And in that I pour in some of the finest wine to serve to the king. Ladies and gentlemen, death is the furnace. This body is the vessel that will be recreated where once it was used for wickedness, but it will be remade for the glory of the king. I rest my case. Please rise. The complaints have been raised. The defense has issued their arguments. It is time for the verdict. I have weighed both sides carefully, I have listened closely, but I realize, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the choice is not mine to make. The choice is for every individual heart on what they will decide. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead or is it all a farce? Do you believe this or do you not? You must decide. And if you do decide, I want to end with this exhortation. And this is the most important exhortation of the day, especially with what we've been through in our own culture. Therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore meaning because Christ has indeed risen from the dead, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your suffering, your grief, your struggle is not in vain. It's worth it. The court is closed. Let's pray.